We've been in a series in 1 John. Uh, we've come to verse chapter 2, verse 28, and I'm going to do something I never do, and we're just going to we're going to focus on verse 28, just one verse. And I think you will see why in a moment. 1 John 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide. Abide means remain. Last time we mentioned how to abide in Him, in Jesus, in Christ. That when He, Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. This verse is a direct reference to Jesus' second coming. Notice the language. When He, Jesus, appears, and at His, Jesus' coming. Jesus came to this earth the first time at Bethlehem, because He was born at Bethlehem. Although the Book of Mormon Alma 7, verse 10 reads, Jesus was born at Jerusalem. No, he wasn't. He was born at Bethlehem. Our calendars are off some, so estimates are Jesus was born at some point between 6 and 4 B.C. That abbreviation B.C. means before Christ. So Jesus was born six, between 6 and 4 B.C. That seems strange to me. B.C. means before Christ, uh, meaning before his birth. But then Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, was born before our calendar recognizes him as being born. It just seems strange, but that's how it is. So there's B.C. and A.D. The abbreviation A.D. doesn't mean after death. Some people are confused about that. Because if B.C. means before Christ, and if A.D. meant after death, then Jesus' entire time on this earth would have been unaccounted for. And he was here for between 33 and 39 years. The most often mentioned estimated time, uh, age of Jesus before he ascended, ascended into heaven was 33. That's the most often mentioned number, 33. But it's possible he was here longer than that. A.D. represents two Latin words, Anno Domini. And Anno Domini means uh, in the year of our Lord in the year of our Lord, and is referring to all chronological time since Jesus' birth. So B.C. means before Christ, and A.D. essentially means after Christ. Now, non-Christians sometimes use secular equivalents. Those secular equivalents are B.C.E. and C.E. Um, secularists use those equivalents uh, to define time. Uh, B.C.E. means before common era, and C.E. means common era. The problem is uh, the common era is the same as the Christian era because it measures time, also measures time from Jesus' birth. So even secular progressives cannot avoid the inevitable conclusion that this man Jesus has divided history into two distinct parts, time before Jesus' birth and time after Jesus' birth. And remember, there is a 1 B.C. and there is a 1 A.D., but there is no zero. No zero. After his virgin birth and his sinless existence, Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected from the dead, and then he bodily ascended into heaven. But before he left this earth, he promised he would return. That was a promise. Um, from a statistical perspective, more is said in Scripture about Jesus' second coming than is said about Jesus' first coming. To be more precise, biblical references to Jesus' second coming outnumber biblical references to Jesus' first coming eight to one. Jesus' second coming is mentioned in 17 Old Testament books and 23 out of the 27 New Testament books. For each 10 chapters in the Bible, uh, Jesus' return is mentioned in seven of those chapters. Altogether, there are a total of 1,845 biblical references to Jesus' return. So we're certain, certain Jesus is scheduled to return to this earth. 
Uh, and this is not an optional doctrine. If we cannot accept that Jesus is coming a second time, then we cannot in good conscience celebrate Christmas either. So this is essential. This is an essential teaching. But there's a problem. Christians agree that Jesus will return, but Christians disagree on some of the specifics of that return. One more time. Christians agree that Jesus will return, but Christians disagree on some of the specifics of that return. This is going to be an abbreviated overview. I might even add the word superficial. An abbreviated superficial overview of Jesus' return. There are three common perspectives concerning Jesus' return. And all of them focus on what is called in prophetic language the millennium. The millennium. The word millennium means 1,000 years. A total of 10 centuries. 1,000 years. Now, different millennial characteristics are described in the Old Testament. But the principal New Testament text that is a direct comment on the millennium is found in Revelation 20, starting at verse 1. Then I, this is John the Apostle, the human author of Revelation, saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's the millennium. Verse 3, and he, this angel, cast him, Satan, into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him, that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had be, been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast, the beast is Antichrist, um, or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, the millennium. Verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Verse 7, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. So, in summation, Jesus returns to the earth in the previous chapter, Revelation 19. And his first action as part of his return is to defeat Antichrist and his armies in northern Israel at this ultimate climatic human battle called Armageddon. Then Jesus orders Satan to be bound in chains and imprisoned in a cosmic compartment called the bottomless pit. And he is to remain chained in that pit for a thousand years. That 1,000 years is the length of the millennial period. Once Satan is incarcerated, he has no more influence on the earth. So Jesus, as the promised Messiah, meaning the anointed one from God, anointed to be king, Jesus establishes his messianic kingdom of absolute peace and prosperity on earth. And that first stage to his eternal rule lasts 1,000 years. That's the reason that that beginning messianic rule is called the millennium. And don't miss this. The specific perspective people have on Jesus' return is entirely contingent on how he understands the millennium. The particular perspective someone has on Jesus' return is entirely contingent on how that person understands the millennium. So I'm going to give you three perspectives. The first perspective is called premillennialism. Premillennialism. This is probably the most common 
modern position on Jesus' return. And this is the particular position I hold to. I'm a premillennialist. What does that mean? Notice the definition. This perspective teaches that Jesus returns to the earth before the millennium. Jesus returns to the earth pre, meaning prior, before the start of the millennial messianic period. Jesus is the promised Messiah. So he has to return in order to be present on this earth in order to establish that messianic millennial period. At the end of that 1,000 years, as we just read, Satan is released from prison in the bottomless pit, and he orchestrates one final rebellion against God. But he is unsuccessful, and he is then incarcerated forever in Gehenna, the ultimate and final hell. Now that's the premillennial perspective, <clears throat> but there is some variation inside that premillennial position. The two most common variations are called historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Let's uh, let's uh, investigate those. Notice the definition: historic premillennialism teaches that there was an undetermined period of increasing tribulation and trouble on earth, and then Jesus returns before the millennium. Uh, historic premillennialism, that name is derived because that was the domi dominant position of the church during the first three centuries, and then uh, Catholicism suppressed that perspective. Uh, this is the chart or diagram of the uh, historic pre-millennial perspective, uh, Jesus returns to the earth just before establishing the messianic millennial period. The second premillennial variation is called dispensational premillennialism. Um, I hope, guys, that you have uh, noticed I'm going to omit one slide there. Hope you noticed that. Um, I'm not going to get into a dispensationalism, but dispensational premillennialism has dominated prophetic discussions during the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, some of us remember the 1970s, uh, Hal Lindsey's. He's a prophetical expert. He's still alive in his 90s. His best-selling book, uh, I think considered the bestseller of that decade, entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. That book interpreted prophetical events from a dispensational premillennial perspectives. And so did the famous Left Behind book series from Tim LaHaye, who is now deceased, and Jerry Jenkins, who is a prolific author. That combination, those men, did that series of novels that to date has sold 80 million copies. Interesting trivia, Jerry Jenkins' son, Dallas Jenkins, is the creator, co-writer, and director of the uh, popular television series called The Chosen. That's who he is, and he is uh, related to uh, Jerry Jenkins, his father. Um, dispensationalism teaches there's a distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, Israel and the church are not one and the same. And God has a separate agenda for each group. Notice the definition of this variation. Dispensational premillennialism teaches Jesus returns before the millennium, but, but that return consists of two separate phases. There's the rapture phase, and then there's the revelation phase. Rapture, then tribulation, period, 84 months, and then the revelation. And this is the diagram of that. Um, the rapture phase is secret, meaning the non-Christian population is not aware of it happening. It becomes aware after it happens, but don't see it happening. Jesus descends from heaven, stops in the atmosphere above the earth. In a microsecond, all Christians are snatched off the earth and are caught up to meet Jesus in the air and then together go on into heaven.
There was an 84-month-long tribulation period on earth. It is literally hell on earth. Daniel 12.1 reads, uh, it, is, it will be a time of trouble such as never was. And then at the end of that tribulation time, Jesus and all those that have been in heaven, and that includes us, if we have Jesus, all those that have been in heaven, return to the earth at the revelation phase. It's called the revelation phase because Jesus is revealed in a public sense as he returns to defeat Antichrist and his forces at Armageddon before going on into Jerusalem to establish his messianic rule. Now, I need to add a footnote, and don't lose me on this. Uh, there is some disagreement as to the timing of this rapture phase. There's some disagreement. There are three different suggested times the rapture phase could occur. Before, in the middle of, and then after the tribulation period. Um, the first position is called a pre-tribulation rapture. A pre-tribulation rapture, meaning the rapture occurs prior to, pre-before pre the tribulation period begins. So that Christians are rescued from that entire horrific time. And this is the diagram of that. Notice Jesus descends from heaven, stops in the clouds. We're called up to meet him and then together go on into heaven. And in our absence from the earth, the tribulation period begins. That's a pre-tribulation rapture. Second, there is a mid-tribulation rapture meaning the rapture occurs at the mid part or the middle portion of the tribulation period. And the midpoint of the tribulation period is 42 months into the tribulation troubles, three and a half years. The second half of the tribulation period is more severe than the first half. So according to this position, Christians are rescued from the most horrific tribulation troubles. And this is the uh, diagram of that, meaning we somehow endure the first 42 months of the tribulation period. Then the rapture occurs. Jesus descends to the clouds. We're caught up to meet him and then go into heaven. And then the remainder of the earth's population endure the second half of the tribulation. Then there is the post-tribulation rapture, meaning the rapture occurs after after the tribulation period has ended. So according to this position, Christians are forced to endure the entire tribulation period. And uh, now notice, this is interesting. Uh, Jesus has to descend to the earth, return to the earth, in order to establish his messianic millennial kingdom. So the tribulation is ended. Christians endured all of that, and not all of them are able to endure all of that because there's going to be massive martyrdom throughout the tribulation period, and the means of execution is going to be hanging. I mean, beheadment. Beheadment. Christians will literally have their heads severed from their bodies. That's Antichrist preferred method of execution. And, but we endure all of that, according to this position. Uh, we're raptured up to meet Jesus, but then notice we have to do an immediate U-turn to come back down so he can establish his millennium. Now, I don't want to make fun of anybody who accepts that, but that's just kind of weird to me. Uh, now, please notice all three rapture times pre, before the tribulation, mid, at the halfway point in the tribulation, or post, meaning at the end of the tribulation, all three rapture times are still pre-millennial. All three of them have Jesus returning before the millennial period. Now, I am a pre-tribulation rapture dispensational premillennialist. Let me say it one more time. I'm a pre this is not rocket science, actually. I'm a pre-tribulation rapture, meaning I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation, and I'm a dispensational premillennialist, meaning I believe that happens before the millennium. Um, I believe Jesus returns to earth in those two separate phases, and both of them occur before the millennium is established. I could be mistaken. 
I've been mistaken before, um, more often than I want to admit. But that's my position. And you don't have to hold the same position I have just because I hold to it. I would encourage you to investigate uh, the subject for yourself. The second perspective on Jesus' return is called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. The definition, notice, this perspective teaches that Jesus returns to the earth after, after the millennial period. Post-millennialism represents the opposite of premillennialism. It maintains that Jesus returns to the earth after the millennial period, although according to them, that period isn't necessarily a literal 1,000-year period. It could be more than that, and it could be less than that. Remember, in premillennialism, Jesus returns to earth, establishes his messianic rule on earth, and then reigns in peace throughout that period. In postmillennialism, Jesus, and this is significant, in postmillennialism, Jesus remains in heaven and then reigns and rules in a spiritual sense on earth through the church. And then the church, in a gradual sense, Christianizes the entire earth's population. And once that happened, once nations and people groups have been Christianized, then Jesus feels comfortable returning. That's the chart of post-millennialism. Again, it's probably not a 1,000-year precise period. Uh, it's that's sort of an ambiguous thing and Jesus rules the earth through the church until societies are Christianized so according to post-millennialism don't miss this according to this second perspective things are in a gradual sense getting better and better and better seriously that's like an alternate universe that is a complete contradiction to both Scripture and to common sense. Notice 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But know this, uh, this is for sure, know this, that in the last days, now, I believe, perilous times will come. One translation reads, terrible times will come. And then verses 2 through 5 describe the behavior of men during those end times. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. I thought that, hang on. Lovers of themselves, selfies alone are an indication of that. I mean, we just, it's all about us. We're all narcissistic to some degree. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. It's just a facade, though, because these people deny its power and from such people turn away. Paul has just described the spiritual condition of man as man is at this moment. Common sense tells us things are getting worse and worse and worse and not better and better and better. And unless our address is a cave, then we are more than aware that societal evilness is out of control. Postmillennialists interpret prophetical passages in a non-literal, figurative, or allegorical sense. So that the 1,000 years we read about earlier from Revelation 20 means something other than 1,000 years. It's interesting that those words, 1,000 years, are mentioned six times 
in those first seven verses. That repetition of 1,000 years seems to indicate that God wanted to emphasize a particular precise period of time and not just some ambiguous time frame. The premillennial position interprets prophetical passages in a literal sense unless the context would indicate not to do so. But the postmillennial perspective doesn't interpret prophetical passages in a literal sense. It, it's, it interprets them in a figurative sense, a non-literal sense allegorical sense. The problem is when the normal meaning of a passage is ignored, then its meaning can then become entirely subjective. And it can mean whatever someone wants it to mean. But God has communicated to us through Scripture using words that have objective meanings so that His ideas and thoughts can be accurately communicated to us. A popular teacher named Lance Walnew, and uh, I know some people uh, would listen to him, uh, and I'm not saying that he doesn't have some helpful information, but Lance has coined the phrase Seven Mountain Mandate. Seven Mountain Mandate abbreviated SM. Lance is an admitted Christian nationalist, and, and this is a this is a frightening part. He's a member of, or part of, NAR, N-A-R, uh, an abbreviation for the heretical New Apostolic Reformation Movement. Lance is, a, I believe, a false teacher that wants the United States to become a theocracy. A theocracy is a form of government where God is the supreme ruler and God gives divine guidance to human intermediaries who manage the government's affairs. Ancient Israel was a theocratic government. It isn't now. It was, though, in the Old Testament. It, it, a theocratic government where the true, one and true God ruled through judges and kings. Some modern examples of counterfeit theocracies Counterfeit theocracies because the God that rules them is a false God. There are counterfeit theocracies now, such as Iran and Saudi Arabia, where the Islamic God Allah is said to rule and where Islamic law is the basis of government. Um, and that law is called Sharia law. Lance has created the seven mountain mandate that is becoming more and more accepted in Pentecostal and charismatic denominations and congregations. He teaches that the seven mountain mandate that isn't mentioned in scripture is the most effective means of creating societal change and in doing so bring about this theocratic governance. This is essentially a post-millennial teaching. Those seven societal mountains are, one, education. And our education system, in a public sense, is now bankrupt. Two, religion. Three, the family. Four, business. Five, the government and the military. Six, the arts and entertainment. Seven, the media. Lance teaches that Christians are to invade and transform these seven societal sectors he calls mountains. According to Lance, each Christian is expected to find a particular societal segment where he fits best and then do all he can to affect change in that sector. Lance's teaching is also called dominion theology. Dominionism argues that Christians should exercise dominion over government and civil affairs, essentially creating a nation governed by Christians also called Christian Reconstructionism. I could name some conservative politicians. Most of us would recognize that have bought into that seven mountain mandate. Now, don't misunderstand. We agree that Christians should penetrate those seven categories we just mentioned. Our educational system uh, needs more Christian 
teachers and professors and Christians on the school board. Uh, businesses need more Christians at upper management. Uh, the arts and entertainment, the media. I mean, the media, the media needs help. I mean, it's interesting, though. There are Christians in the media. We happened to take a tour of First Baptist Dallas, which is amazing. Their original sanctuary was built in 1890. It's been added to since then. And, uh, but uh, one decade ago, uh, the church raised $130 million to do uh, a renovation, the largest such renovation of any church uh, to our knowledge in existence. And uh, it was amazing, amazing. Um, and it's interesting that uh, today, this morning, at First Baptist Dallas, where Dr. Jeffries is, uh, they have a special guest. Her name is Shannon Bream. Uh, she's not going to preach, but she's going to be interviewed and share her testimony. She is a committed Christian, graduate of Liberty University. That's fantastic that, that we have Christians in the media. We just need more of them. So we understand Christians should penetrate those seven categories we just mentioned. But our mandate isn't to do that. Don't miss this. Our mandate isn't to do that so that we can create theocratic government rule. But the biblical mandate is to penetrate those societal segments so that we can make Christian disciples. Per Jesus' instructions, our mission is still the Great Commission. The third position is called amillennialism. Amillennialism. Notice the definition. This perspective teaches there is no millennium. There is no millennium. The prefixed a or a means no. It means to negate something. So the actual word amillennial means no millennium. But that's not the most complete understanding of this position. Amillennialism does mean that there's no actual literal millennium. No actual literal messianic rule on earth for 10 centuries or 1,000 years. But amillennialism also means there is a period of time on earth, an undetermined period of time on earth that accommodates the spiritual realization of such a millennium. And that non-literal spiritual millennium started at Jesus' birth and will end at his return. So according to amillennialism, we are now now, right now, this morning, in, uh, in this spiritual form of the millennium. So to them, the millennium isn't a prophetical something we're waiting for. The millennium is a present reality. It's here, and we're in it, according to them. And this is the chart of amillennialism, this present spiritual form. So post-millenniums taught that Jesus ruled from heaven through the church on earth. So that was a spiritual form of the millennium. And this is the same. Much the same. Amillennialism also dates to the first century. And then in the fifth century, uh, the famous theologian Augustine also taught this eschatological position. In addition, amillennialism was the position... Um, most of the 16th century Protestant reformers held. And reformed congregations still hold to amillennialism, as does Catholicism. So there's premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, and all are acceptable Christian perspectives. So you can choose one. I mentioned earlier, I'm a pre-tribulation rapture premillennialist. Um, I'm so hung up on that, um, I refuse to eat post-toasties breakfast cereal. <laughs> and I'd go to the doctor, he said, open your mouth and say, ah. I said, can't do it, doc, can't do it. <laughs> I'm a pre-tribulation rapture premillennialist. I wish we had time to, to, to share the arguments pro and con for each position, but... I don't know, people here want to get out of church at some point in time. Uh, verse 28, one more time. And now little children, abide in him, 
that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The question presented in this verse is this. Will we be ashamed of ourselves at Jesus' return? And this question is applicable to all three positions we just mentioned. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Because all three believe Jesus is going to return. So the question is, will we be ashamed of ourselves at Jesus' return? Notice the definition. Shame is feeling humiliation caused by the conscious awareness of wrong or foolish behavior. Humiliation caused by the conscious awareness of someone's wrong or foolish behavior. Now, don't miss this. Shame can be a good thing, and shame can be a not-so-good thing. An example, a certain degree of shame is needed to bring someone to salvation. In order to receive salvation, we first need to be ashamed of ourselves and ashamed of our sin. Shame is the driving force behind repentance. In order to receive salvation, we must first feel a sense of shame over our sin. If in our pre-salvation condition, we can imagine ourselves as God sees us, then we will feel a profound and intense sense of shame. And that shame will convince us to repent, meaning turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, who was the singular solution to our sin problem. If we don't feel shame to some degree over our sin, then we will never see the need to receive forgiveness. A biblical example of being ashamed of one's sin resulting in salvation is the tax collector in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Notice this is from Luke 18, starting at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, also called a publican. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and, notice, prayed <coughs> thus with himself. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And said this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. This is arrogance on steroids. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So both men went to the temple to pray. The Pharisees were egotistical, religious snobs. And this Pharisee pretended to pray. But his praying never made it past the ceiling because his praying basically consisted of just braggadocious statements he made about himself to God. The tax collector prayed a much different prayer than did the Pharisee. Roman tax collectors were considered societal scum. Tax collectors were never even permitted to be, to even testify in a court of law because tax collectors were thieves and extortioners. These men would hyperinflate the amount of tax monies that someone owed the government. I mean, someone, a, a tax collector would say to someone, you owe this amount, but it was a hyperinflated amount. He would then collect that amount from that person, that exaggerated amount. He would then give the government the actual amount that person owed, which is much less than what he collected, and then he would pocket the overage for himself. He was an extortionist and a thief. Verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off, meaning he didn't stand beside the Pharisee, he was ashamed, and he stood off probably in the corner. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He couldn't look up. Question. Jesus sometimes prayed, eyes open, staring into heaven. His famous prayer from John 17 is an example of that. So why couldn't this tax collector, 
lift his head up toward heaven as he prayed because he was ashamed. He was ashamed of his selfishness. He was ashamed of his greed. He was ashamed of his unethical business practices. He was ashamed at how he had ripped the public off. He was ashamed. So notice, but he beat his breast. I imagine his posture was something like this. His head bent over. Probably his eyes were closed. And he was beating his chest. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, most parents understand that if a small child is caught doing something he shouldn't do, and we, the parent says, come here, that child stares at the floor and doesn't want to look up at the parent. He's ashamed. He could be ashamed of what he did, or he could be ashamed that he got caught. He's ashamed, though. But as a parent, it is important to address his unacceptable actions and also exercise the discipline required as a consequence for such actions. So the parent has to tell him, Johnny, look at me. Look at me. Because he's ashamed, and he doesn't want to. This tax collector was ashamed of his sin. He verbalized that emotion as he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. To be merciful meant he wanted God to spare him from the punishment he understood he deserved as a sinner. And God answered that prayer. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, meaning this tax collector, went down to his house justified. Justified is a theological word and means he received from God at that moment a righteous status. He wasn't made righteous, he was pronounced righteous, so that from that moment on, God perceived him to be righteous, and he was therefore made acceptable to God. So he experienced salvation. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. One of our biggest societal problems is the ongoing push to eliminate shame altogether. People can commit decadent, overt sin and never feel ashamed of themselves. Instead, people celebrate sin. June is considered Pride Month. An annual LGBTQ pride parades numbering into the millions of attendees are there to celebrate sexual deviation. More and more churches are hanging up pride flags. There are churches that have drag queens in a public worship service, come down front, bring the children, and read them Bible stories. Why is this happening? Because we are creating a shameless culture. So shame can be a good thing. We need more shame in that sense. But shame can also be a a bad thing. And the shame John references in this verse is a shame we shouldn't want to experience. We don't want to be ashamed of ourselves at Jesus' return. Verse 28, one more time. And now little children abide in him that when he, Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. There are two times where we could experience possible shame at Jesus' return. First, there's a possible immediate shame. A possible immediate shame. This is the shamefulness we could feel the moment we see Jesus. Remember, his return is unannounced and sudden. So it's possible we're ashamed because he caught us unprepared to meet him. <coughs> If Jesus returned unannounced sometime in the next month, would we be ashamed of where he would catch us? Would we be somewhere where we shouldn't be? Would we be ashamed of what he would catch us doing? Would we be ashamed of the self-destructive baggage we carried? Or ashamed of the undesirable associations we have? 
or ashamed of the bad habits we were addicted to? If Jesus returned in the next 30 seconds, would we feel confident about meeting him? Or would we have a sense of shame about ourselves? During the Second World War, somewhere in Eastern Europe, a Nazi SS soldier cradled a machine gun. As he stood and watched, an older man, a bearded, ascetic Jewish man, dig what this man intuitively knew would be his own grave. So this soldier is standing there as this man is digging the grave. And suddenly this Jewish captive stopped shoveling. He stood up straight and he announced to his executioner, God is watching what you are doing. He said to him, and he was courageous, he said, God is watching what you are doing. That statement angered this soldier, so he immediately shot and executed this old man. What Hitler did not believe, what those SS troops did not believe, what the German Gestapo did not believe, what the Nazis did not believe, what those evil perpetrators of heinous crimes against humanity did not believe was that God was watching what they were doing. It never entered their minds that God was watching them. But people, God is always watching. Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. Someone in the 1950s created the common idiomatic phrase we have all heard and probably have even used ourselves. It's the phrase, out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. That phrase, out of sight, out of mind, means we stop thinking about something or we stop thinking about someone if we don't see that thing or that person for an extended period of time. (laughs) At the present, we aren't able to see Jesus in a tangible material form. So sometimes Jesus is to us out of sight, out of mind. Meaning we have forgotten. He's still here and he's still watching us. Second, there's a possible judgmental shame. A possible judgmental shame. This is the shame we could feel in heaven after being evaluated of the judgment seat of Christ. There are altogether seven different judgments mentioned in Scripture. And of those seven judgments, the judgment seat of Christ is the most understood. Some time ago, and it's been some time, we did an entire two-part message on the judgment seat of Christ. So this is just a, an abbreviated comment on that. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That phrase translated in this verse as judgment seat is just one Greek word. And that word is bima, B-E-M-A, bima. And this bima meant a raised or elevated platform that was mounted by steps. In a technical sense, this would be a bima. It's an elevated platform mounted by steps. It's true this word bima could be used to describe the seat of a judicial judge, meaning someone that made a determination about an accused defendant's guilt or innocence. Even now in modern courtrooms, uh, judges are seated on a small platform above all the others in the room. So Bema could be used to describe a judicial bench, a judicial judge, and that's probably the reason it's translated here as judgment seat. But Bema had another common usage that was probably more familiar to the people from Corinth, Greece. And that is an important distinction because, notice, Paul was addressing this subject in his second letter to those ancient Corinthian Christians. This word bima was used in ancient Greece 
often described the platform that facilitated the award ceremonies at different ancient games. There were some famous games held at Corinth 12 months before and then 12 months after each Olympic Games. Those games were called the Isthmian Games. <coughs> at those Isthmian Games, in the middle of the stadium, there would be this raised platform, and that platform was called the Bema. The winner of an athletic contest, a wrestling match, a discus throw, different races, the athlete that was victorious would be brought up to this Bema. He would climb the steps and stand on the upper level of this platform. A prominent citizen would then take an oak leaf cluster or a laurel wreath and place it on the contestant's head as a tangible symbol of his athletic success. And we still do that in modern times. We were fortunate, we pastored in Los Angeles at the time, so we were fortunate to attend the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. And some of the events we attended were the track and field competitions held in the Los Angeles Coliseum. We were able to see some famous names such as Edwin Moses and Carl Lewis. Uh, it was exciting. It was fantastic. At one end of the infield, there was a large platform that different athletes, after a competition, would mount by steps in order to receive their medals, bronze, silver, and gold. That platform was essentially a modern bima. The bima was used as a strategic location to honor and congratulate those athletes that had achieved something significant. And that was common knowledge to those ancient Corinthians. So this phrase, judgment seat, is almost a misrepresentation. Because the word judgment in a more traditional sense, is about punishment on wrongdoing. In fact, all other biblical judgments are judgments on sin except this one. The judging someone's sin is not what this particular judgment is about. This judgment does not punish sin and wrongdoing. Instead, it is intended to honor and commend and reward someone. Jesus is going to be evaluating us at this judgment, and then rewarding us according to that evaluation. Notice the purpose. The judgment seat of Christ is designed to evaluate someone's time on this earth as a Christian. So Jesus can then reward him or her according to how useful he or she was to God and man. Our Christian existence is going to be evaluated so Jesus can honor and commend and reward us according to how useful we were to him and to man. 2 Corinthians 5.10, one more time. For we must all appear. There are no excused absences on this one. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, meaning in our lifetime on this earth according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The fact this verse reads, we're going to be evaluated as to the good or bad we have done, is confusing on the surface. That statement would seem, on the surface, seem to contradict the biblical teaching that salvation is a free, no-strings-attached gift from God, and it's not contingent on our doing more good than bad. But that clarification, that confusion, is clarified if we understand the meaning of the word bad. This word translated here as bad in the original Greek language is the word kakos. K-A-K-O-S. Kakos. And kakos means, get this, useless or worthless. Kakos means useless or worthless. That Greek word, kakos, is not a moral word. It is not an ethical word. It is absolutely no reference to evil and sin. It is a word that describes something that has no lasting value, and so it's useless. This statement might be better paraphrased as that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether useful or useless. Whether useful or useless. Or 
according to what he has done, whether profitable or unprofitable. This judgment is not to decide if we have done moral good or moral bad or evil. It is designed to evaluate those things we have done as Christians and see which of them were useful to God and useful to people and therefore had eternal value and which things were useless and unprofitable and didn't contain eternal value. A Christian is going to be rewarded on the basis of that which he did as a Christian on this earth that had actual eternal value and was considered useful. William James said, The greatest use of life is to spend it on something that outlasts it. And if we do that, if we do expend ourselves on something that outlasts us, then that constitutes that can constitute something that is going to be rewarded at the Bema seat. The judgment seat isn't about equity. Equity is thrown around all the time in the media. It's not a good concept. We aren't all rewarded the same. The judgment seat is more about meritocracy because we are rewarded on the basis of what we did or didn't do as an individual that mattered. I was once asked to do a memorial service for a man I'd never met. And sometimes that happens. Uh, families don't have a pastor, and so the mortuary called me and asked if I would do it. And I knew this family had a connection to someone in our church, and so I said yes. And I might add, I've never, ever, ever, ever accepted or asked for an honorarium if I do a funeral or memorial. But I just felt compelled to do this. It was awkward. It was difficult. I never met this man. Knew nothing about this man. This man died in his mid-60s. So during that service, four of his friends stood and shared eulogies. Each of them reciting different memories of times with this gentleman. And from those personal stories, I was able to summarize this deceased man's entire existence in just one statement. It was so apparent. In summation, this summarizes his entire existence in this statement. He loved to fish and drink beer. God was never mentioned. And that singular statement, he loved to fish and drink beer, was the sum total of his contribution to humanity. According to biblical standards, he was useless. He was unprofitable. As a Christian who has a useless existence on this earth, he isn't going to receive rewards of the judgment seat in heaven. One commentator made this statement, the tragedy in so many Christians' lives is not the tragedy of living horribly immoral lives, but it is the tragedy of living disastrously inconsequential ones. I'm not out there doing a bunch of stuff I shouldn't do. I don't even have time to do that. But I'm not doing all that God wants me to do that would make a difference. These available rewards at the Bema seat are in the form of crowns. I want to earn at least one crown. Some are going to earn multiple crowns. In Revelation 4, and I'm finished, in Revelation 4 there is a strong inference if we had time, we could demonstrate that. There was a strong inference that those that are rewarded at the Bema seat will at some point remove their crowns and put them at the feet of Jesus as an act of worship. Those Christians that are rewarded at the Bema seat receive crowns, and then at some point after that, will remove those crowns from their heads and will place them at the feet of Jesus as a tangible, material act of worship. I contend that those Christians that aren't rewarded at the Bema Seat, those Christians that have nothing to show for themselves, those Christians that don't receive crowns will have nothing to give to Jesus in worship. And those Christians will fall to their knees in absolute shame. Heads buried in their hands and sobbing and sobbing. That's being ashamed at His coming. But someone could argue that there are no tears in heaven. So that shameful reaction isn't possible. I absolutely disagree. 
Revelation 20 verse 4 reads that in heaven, quote, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think through this. The book of Revelation itself is recorded in a quasi-chronological sense. I believe it is, to some degree, chronological in a futuristic prophetical sense. Then in sequence, if that is true, Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 occurs long after the Bema seat inferred to in Revelation chapter 4. So it's not just possible, but it is entirely probable that there are tears and embarrassment and shame in heaven at the Bema seat. John Greenleaf Whittier was an American Quaker poet and a strong abolitionist. He abhorred the slave trade. He made this now famous statement, Of all sad words, of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. Those words, it might have been, aren't the words we want to hear in heaven. But instead we should want to hear those words from Jesus himself, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I know our time is late. We're going to try to squeeze in a closing song here, but I pray, God, that you'll use this message to make a difference in each of us. We covered a lot of stuff. I just hope and pray it made sense. Again, I thank you for your goodness, your patience with us. Help us each to determine to make our life count. It doesn't matter our age. We can serve you to the moment we die. Help us to make our lives count. Help us to be useful and profitable to you and to others so that at the Bema seat we might receive tangible crowns that we can in turn give back to your son who saved us. Thank you. In his name I pray. Amen.